0: Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is author and coach, Mandy Kubicek. We'll talk about her book, I Killed Mum and Other Lies, a memoir of early loss, which recounts the lifelong effects of trauma, repressed emotions and shame. Kubaček talks about the deaths of her mother and brother coming to terms with these losses and eventually finding peace and joy.
1: I wrote this book for people sort of like me who lost a parent young or had some other kind of big loss and it was years ago and it's still a thing for them and they haven't been able to talk about it. They haven't found community.
0: Listeners should note that the theme of suicide is discussed in the show. If you or someone you know needs help, please contact the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by call or text to 988 or online at 988lifeline.org. Mandy Kubitschek helps online entrepreneurs achieve greater success. Before that, she coached dozens of high-achieving women through career transitions and led teams of product managers at high-growth tech startups. Kubicek was last on the show in 2019, since when she has authored two books, the latest titled I Killed Mum and Other Lies – A Memoir of Early Loss, which is an autobiographical account of trauma in Kubicek's life. A lifelong learner and navel-gazer, Kubicek is a certified Martha Beck life coach, has staffed the Byron Katie School for the Work, and has an MBA from Washington University in St. Louis. Mandy Kubitschek, welcome to LIVES.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I should say welcome back to LIVES. Yes. So let's start with the book. Could you give us an outline of what it is and what it's about?
1: Yes, I would love to. Um, I love this book so much. It was a seven-year project, so it's my beautiful baby. So basically... When I was around 30, I was in a stressful work environment and found myself bedbound by depression. And it was very related to um, the early trauma in my life, which is that my mom died unexpectedly very quickly when I was seven. So I think of this story as essentially my journey of relearning how to play decades after I lost my mom.
0: The book is structured in a way that I found helpful and created a sense of narrative drama, which is perhaps an odd way to describe it, given that it is a memoir. Mm -hmm. But it's structured in a way where each chapter alternates and recounts either an episode in your adult life or in your childhood. And then it keeps building with that alternating rhythm until we reach the climax. What made you decide to structure the content that way?
1: Yes, I can't remember exactly how this idea started, but I can say that the the now timeline, it goes between then and now. The now timeline was clear from very early on. It's like this five-year period of being at the bottom and and growing in a certain way. The then timeline is like it was a total mess for many years because you're trying to it is real life you're trying to create this cause and effect that we love in stories. This happened because this happened and then this happened because of that and it's just my life I've never had another life so I don't really know exactly why one thing led to the other. Um, So that was that was a complex part of it. I'm really happy where it ended up landing. Um, But yeah, I think there was uh, it's like this mix of these powerful moments that happened in the present and particularly through a really good therapy experience I had. The powerful moments that I've kept with me from childhood that I suddenly learned were linked so closely. You know, I could see in some ways, why um, me being really hard on myself and being hesitant to brag about something was tied to this thing that one of my caregivers used to say to me. So I don't know where I'm going with that, but that was kind of a part of the inspiration I think for the then and now of being able to connect those dots that I was connecting, but in a way that made sense to the reader, (laughs) it wasn't all jumbled up, it was a really clear picture from the past that they could see in whole, whereas for me, it was just a quick flash of memory.
0: There is an author's note at the beginning that you write talking about the challenge of being accurate with the material. Could you share a little bit more about how you went about expressing something that was real and true, but at the same time acknowledging that you can't remember everything exactly as it was? This is a memoir, but to some degree, there is some recreation.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is one of my favorite things that I learned through this process. And it took so much. It, like, my whole community really helped with this, whether it was classes I took or little ad hoc writing groups that I was a part of where every Saturday I'd read a chapter and get feedback from my fellow writers. Um, and so there's a couple of of philosophies that I held in mind. One was about being emotionally true and not caring as much about the fact. Another is that my favorite writing is really vivid and sensually complete. It's You can, you can smell and taste what's in the room, you know? Um, and so I had to get comfortable with the fact that it's a more enjoyable, engaging experience if I can put in reasonable details that you know could theoretically have been true rather than putting this vague you know leaving out details or saying well I wasn't I don't even know how to do it because I don't do it but um, there are times where it's fun to leave to include the reader in on where you're unsure and there are times I do that too it's like you know I'm not sure if it was this or this Um, but as far as the memory yeah that is super fun and it was I said in the author's note, it was so satisfying when my dad read it, who I expected to be all up in arms about the black and white factual matters. Um, because there have been times in the past where he's been able to correct me, like, oh, actually, we didn't, we didn't take your mom's things to Goodwill. We took them to um, a women's shelter or whatever the little factual detail is. But his reaction was just complete acceptance and like joy in the fact that it was my truth my memory my best best effort and that's not necessarily his and that's fine and i will say also with memory earlier in this journey i was big on on getting those truths getting the the accuracies and I interviewed I had this whole plan I'm kind of a project manager too as I think you know whole plan of the neighbors and the aunts and all the people that I was going to interview and I did a couple of them and it was just like this is crazy this is so bizarre like and I was so attached to it until I did that because one person in my family would say for example yeah your mom she was just not a happy person she was always really depressed and here's my evidence of why she just went through life totally depressed. Another person, completely different story. It was, yeah, your mom was thrilled to have you. She loved having her kids, and these were the fun things we did together. And no, I don't think I can't think of a time when I ever thought she was depressed. You know, even when I'm asking these pointed questions, I get completely different answers. Um, or another quick example: there's a there's a big moment when. Mom is in the hospital during Christmas and we open the Christmas presents without her. One of those few people that I interviewed was convinced that she was there with my dad, brother and I (laughs) opening presents and I asked my dad later because I didn't remember and this was like a a neighbor essentially. Um, He's like, no, she definitely, that would have made no sense, she was not there. but she had a lot of details to tell me about what happened that moment when she was there with us opening presents. So memory is a tricky thing.
0: Did the act of writing the book, you said it you've been writing it, well, you've been writing it your entire life in some way, but, but actually intentionally writing for the last seven years or so, did the act of doing this surface more memories that surprised you?
1: Yes. I think it surfaced some new memories. But the tricky thing is... <laughs> I also have started to question like to what extent which of these feel, which of these are more real and which feel more real because I have written and revised this scene 30 times. So it's hard to say. I will throw in one, one thing that has definitely helped with memory, I think, is the work of Byron Katie. It's like this it's a tool for um, breaking free of your stressful thoughts, but part of the process is, sort of meditating back on a stressful moment in the past and really being there in the same way as I do when I write. You're going back and you don't try to guess at what you saw but you really feel everything. Um, And so I basically did that as I was writing some of these scenes and that's where some of the almost like more of a um, somatic experience, the feelings of things came up that helped me remember details.
0: A memoir almost inevitably involves other people, other real people, and you've already mentioned showing this to your father. But there are a lot of people, obviously connected with your life, that are mentioned in the book: uh, your your father, uh, his wife Sherry, uh, your husband Bob, and and many others. Who did you invite into the process of contributing to the book's content, reviewing the book, and what have their reactions been?
1: Good question. Of the people who are actually in the book, I think Bob is the only one that I invited early on because it's such a sensitive thing.
0: And to be clear, Bob is your spouse. Yes.
1: Yes. He is my husband. So, he also, and he also, for the most part, was not (laughs) in the stories that I was, you know, at that stage early on, it was about my family of origin, um, who are people that he knows as an adult. He's also very good with people. So, he, uh, God bless that he read this before it came out, because there were a lot of scenes where he's like, oh, I feel like they might be insulted by this little detail, um, and I'm not gonna edit the book just to not insult people, but there were ways that he showed me that I could communicate more clearly their personality or their appearance that isn't insulting and is actually much more interesting. My dad, I invited in, a, maybe it was a couple of years. It was sometime during COVID. It was actually right before my first book came out now that I'm remembering. I gave him an early version where I scrubbed out anything that was negative about him. (laughs) Um, Anything about sex. There were a couple things about sex back then. I think only one little bit made into the final version. I gave him a copy and got really good feedback from him. So that helped me move forward, I think. Um, My stepmom, I believe, still doesn't plan to read it because she thinks it will upset her, and she's correct. So I'm really grateful that she's... Taking care of herself in that way and just not going there Um, and the rest of my family I just I sort of waited until it was all done so that it wouldn't be uh, influenced too much.
0: Given that it's now out in the world you mentioned Sherry your stepmom hasn't read it doesn't plan to but how have the other people you've mentioned now given you feedback?
1: Oh I've had such great feedback it's really it's really lovely because you don't know how people are gonna respond especially when they know you and we talked about memory and truth there are certainly things that people in my life disagree with but that's never what anyone shares you know Um, I had one of my friends who I was really excited to have read it he lost his dad when he was 16 and we hadn't talked much about it he read the book in addition to writing a beautiful review where he says it's a must read for anyone who went through early parent loss, he and I had like a 70-minute conversation on the phone where he shared some about his experience and I shared some of mine. It was just really beautiful. So that's, that's my favorite when people have connected with it from their own experiences. Like you said, this is really it's my story, but it matters because there's so much universalness to it. Yeah, and I think also it's fun that much of my family had no idea that I could write so well, so they're just like tickled. And afterwards, many of them were like, okay, so this is what you're doing now, right? You're gonna be a writer full-time? I'm like, oh, God bless you. I've had these skills for a long time, but I don't have the fortitude to be a full-time writer.
0: I'm curious, who did you write this book for?
1: people like my friend Matthew that I just talked about I wrote this book for people sort of like me who lost a parent young or had some other kind of big loss and it was years ago and it's still a thing for them and they haven't been able to talk about it they haven't found community
0: the title of the book is I killed mom and other lies it's subtitled a memoir of early loss and I think when People read the book they'll understand that the obvious response as to why the book is titled that way because of your belief for a long period of time that you were the cause of your mother's death and that becomes clear as to why in the book but by the time I'd finished the book I did wonder if there were other reasons why you titled the book in that way for example if in some sense um, There's this sort of abstract idea that you needed to kill this idea uh, to be able to move on with your healing process. And this might just be a fanciful response from a reader, but I don't know, Um, what is the origin of the title?
1: You are precisely correct, Stuart. Um, It ties into my life coaching background. Mindset, for the most part, I see these two big themes. Life gets better when I question my stressful thoughts and when I allow my feelings. I mean, typically it's the uncomfortable ones that I'm not allowing. So yeah, The Other Lies is really speaking to all of that BS, all of the thoughts we tell ourselves. Did you notice the chapter titles? Have we talked about this?
0: We haven't, please do.
1: Um, some of my friends have been very embarrassed that they didn't realize until they had completely finished the book <laughs> that every chapter title is a lie I tell myself. I'm over it. I have thick skin. I have to be strong. So it is the big lie that you mentioned that the book is about, but it's also all those little things that we tell ourselves that usually are formulated in childhood either by our culture or you know, our well-meaning, well-intentioned parents doing the best they can or or whatever else it is. And I just I tend to find that the more that I can loosen up, my attachment to those beliefs, the easier it is to be lighthearted and enjoy life.
0: Before we get to the book itself, what was the journey from this spark, this idea that you had that this was something that needed to be written to actually having this uh, physical product?
1: That's a big conversation. (laughs) I will say it sort of started I had some therapy sessions, right? Like, it'd be in the afternoon, and I'd get back to work and just be thinking, "Whoa, that was that was one heck of a therapy session." Like, I feel so much lighter. Something really magical happened there. Um, Maybe I will want to tell people about this someday. And so I would get back to my desk and just journal for a little bit. So I would capture it. Thank goodness I did because um, I wouldn't have remembered a lot of that stuff. So that's how it started. Um, there was a long, up and down, complicated journey in there. Uh, I, I have this ideal in my head that I would be someone who writes a clear outline of a book before I start and I write really efficiently, um, but that's not the situation. It couldn't have been for this book. So there must be I don't know, at least thousands, thousands if not tens of thousands of pages of material that I wrote that didn't get into the book because I needed to write them but they had nothing to do with this book. Um, yeah, lots of writers groups, um... I don't know, a very slow process and then I worked with this lovely duo Alex Franson and Lindsay Smith who have a product called the tiny book course and they their whole concept is like your book doesn't have to be huge you know it could be a little tiny thing and it still brings value to the world and it's overwhelming to publish a book so let's help you here's a template for the interior design here's how you pick where to publish it because there is so much with between writing editing designing And distributing your book there's a lot so I did that and that helped me publish my first book which made this one so much easier because there is a lot to learn and I did it myself under Glad Panda Press.
0: I want to talk about the book what's in it maybe some themes maybe invite you to allow us to see between the lines a little bit too but before we do that would you be willing to share a uh, short reading from the book
1: yes how about this one yes yeah, so i'm gonna read um, a slightly adapted version of the first chapter i'm over it my heart beat fast as i walked toward the red brick bungalow past the sign in the yellowed lawn that read morning hope grief center i was seven years old when my mom died now in my mid-twenties newly married with a stable job I believed I'd made sufficient emotional progress. There was just one milestone remaining. I hadn't yet transformed my tragedy into something that might benefit others. I admired people who hit rock bottom, rebounded and gave back, like Oprah. So I was going to volunteer with grieving children like I'd once been. The heavy front door creaked. I felt the clash of the brisk February air against my back and at my front, the radiator trying its best. From inside the doorway, I saw a living room set up with a couch, a droopy love seat, and an array of chairs forming an oval around the room. I chose a spot on the end of the couch, my butt landing lower than expected in the worn cushion. Soon, the day's training kicked off with what the instructor described as our most important lesson, how to companion. She told us that our job wasn't to fix anything. We were to walk beside. Our role was to be with someone in their pain, without urgency or judgment. What a relief, I thought, my shoulders settling down into place. I didn't need to make anyone feel better. Later we toured bedrooms upstairs that served as group meeting spaces. We saw a basement designed for the littlest kids. The main area appeared like any daycare's playroom with one exception. I tilted my head to skim the titles on the bookshelf. Why did grandma die? Someone I love died by suicide. Am I still a sister? I couldn't stop my torso from clenching with envy. Surely some books like this existed in 1992. Why hadn't anyone given me one? Instead, we rarely talked about my mother or what had happened to her that tragic Christmas. When the next 10 week session started, I facilitated a small group of 11 and 12 year olds. By the end, after weeks of watching their young hearts open, I was exhausted. It wasn't just grief and jealousy that lingered, but the shame of them. I thought I was supposed to be over it by now.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I think that last line, you thought you were supposed to be over it by now, is a key through line that underpins you know a lot of the book and the trauma that you had to come to terms with and that you explain as, uh, as you write. What were those psychological ways you expressed yourself in the world what were the consequences of not having that support that you described at the Mm -hmm. end there that those children you were seeing with those children as they were navigating their grief you didn't have that and so you were left with poor starting point to handle grief which you didn't for many years what did what did that do to you
1: I will say I've always been a big fan of like personality and career assessments and I remember in elementary school taking the Myers Briggs and I am not going to get all these acronyms right but I think I was ENTJ which is a very slim percentage of the population even fewer women typically they become CEOs now when I take the test I'm I don't know INFP whatever life coaches are. (laughs) That's what I am. And it's a great illustration for me of how I basically like I had these big walls up and I really wanted to be um, judgment based and not feeling based. I wanted things to be really factual and I wanted people to know that I had stuff together and I didn't need any help. There was like this rigidness to me that I thought was my true self. And yet, there were elements, maybe there's some, you know, authenticity in some of that, but there were these elements that have fallen away over the years that I realized were really defense mechanisms in place because I am a very sensitive person. I am a very feeling-oriented person. Um, I think everybody that meets me thinks that. they, You know, I have a very feminine energy. That sort of intuition side is very strong. So... It's interesting to me that for many years, I just boxed that all up. It's kind of sad, really.
0: There's a chapter early in the book. I come in with the exact title now, but it's one of the lies, and it's about having a thick skin. Hmm. And you wow the interviewers at this tech startup, and you describe how you're the person that makes other people cry, (laughs) not the other way around. And I read that, and I I could read what you were trying to express. Clearly you were leading the reader into understanding this, this really wasn't the real you. However, this was the you showing up at that time, and it felt a bit callous in some ways. And I wonder if you look back on those moments and as you described, there's this defensiveness, and it showed up in in ways that were hard on you and the people around you. Is, is that a way that you showed up in the world in terms of um, emotional repression?
1: I think so, yes. Um, and I think it's also a great, you know, it's useful to look at other people with that lens when people are being harsh and cold um, there's usually something there there's just this idea that uh, it's not quite the callousness but another piece I'm remembering is the self pressure I guess is what you would call it this tendency to beat yourself up before anybody else can do it so that you're not surprised that had been a big theme in my life that I think is tied into that the the childhood trauma of, I don't like being surprised because at my essence, I am a sensitive person and I'm going to have a reaction if somebody is upset with me, so I'm just gonna be upset with myself first, tell myself how terrible I am, (laughs) then I can have the emotional reaction and not be blindsided, which is not a fun way to live.
0: You talked about being rigid and definitely in the early chapters you're describing this outward appearance where you were trying to meet expectations, this model you created in your head about what the, you know, who the perfect man he was and who the perfect employee or spouse or, uh, you know, friend should be. And you projected this self-assurance that was actually quite fragile and it didn't take much to kind of knock you back into that cycle of guilt or shame, um, anger in many ways. In some ways, as I read the book, it, it seemed a surprise to me that it was taking you so long and perhaps this is just because the you know, years of your life is condensed into the you know, chapters of a book. But it seemed surprising in some ways that it it, it took you that long to realize that there was repression happening and it was all hooked back to mm. your early grief. Should I be surprised that I think surprised? there's a
1: difference between not knowing that repression is happening and being ready to do something about it. It's sort of like, yeah, I always knew there was something, but not to the point where I was really gonna say to myself, hey, Mandy, there's something, because at that point I have to take responsibility, and the time just wasn't right. There were parts of it, you know, there's layers of growth, but um, there was a whole layer that I wasn't ready to tackle until I was ready.
0: There's brief mention in the book about social media in in one of these sort of spiraling moments. You're scrolling through a social media platform and, of course, you're reacting uh, uh, negatively to what you're seeing because it's all perfection and you, at that point, are feeling incredibly negative about yourself. Um, and so it's kind of reinforcing that. And yet, at the same time, you're working in the technology field as well. Uh, and in my head, I'm conjuring this idea that, you know, you, you, you love social media because that's your world. Um, how did social media influence any part of your journey from uh, you know, this emotional trauma to this point of healing?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, for the record, I don't love social media. I wish I was neutral about it, but I've got some hang-ups. Um, you know, it's not something I've really thought about in that context, but I will say that during the time that I wrote this book, towards the later part of it, I think, I started experimenting. I can't remember which book most inspired me to do this. It might've been Deep Work. Um, experimenting with taking some time away from social media and looking not just people over inflate, the value that they get out of something without also looking at what it's costing them so I looked honestly at what I was getting from it and what it was taking away from me and you know it's not Facebook's fault, it's not Instagram's fault but the way that I use those tools is addictive and ugly and um, so I actually deleted Facebook and Instagram a couple years ago and it's been great. Of course I find other things to be addicted to I look at LinkedIn at the stupidest, most frequent times (laughs) Um, because I'm always, you know, when I feel a sense of loneliness, I reach out to the social media app like so many of us do.
0: Early on in um, your childhood around high school time, you penned an essay about the experience of losing your mom and to an outsider that essay seems a wise and powerful expression of having lived through a trauma experienced it and drawn great wisdom for your life out of it and it's clear in hindsight of course that that was a fiction it was almost a delusion of your of your own making in some sense because you weren't over it you you hadn't moved through that trauma i'm just curious what were you thinking at the time that you wrote that essay so far as you can remember that and how do you look back on that now
1: yeah that's fascinating because i was probably 17 when i wrote that essay for a high school psychology class. And I think the assignment was to write about the worst thing that's ever happened to you, which is a really stupid <laughs> assignment, if that's what it was. Uh, but it was it was really enjoyable at the end, because I wanted to write about that. At the time, I believe that I believed what I wrote. I really felt like this was a done deal, um, you know, I learned what I needed to learn and I'm moving on. It was the same like stoicism that we were talking about earlier. I didn't really put more context around this until I read um, a Star Raven's memoir. She's an Omaha author, How the, Tell, How the Stars Tell Time is what it's called, I think. And she goes and visits her past um, journals. And one of the things that happens is she sees these snippets of pure wisdom Where she's like I cannot believe Astara at 21 Wrote that because now I understand it in these Multi-dimensional layers much more clearly and it means so much and it's so wise I think that's kind of what happened here like this part of myself knew, knew the truth and came out with these pieces and over time I just understand those learnings much more deeply
0: it feels as if a lot of your experience was almost a textbook for how to handle grief badly and not you personally necessarily although that's a part of it but also the advice you were given and and the line that's sort of sticking in my mind is you've got to be strong for and i would imagine that many people have heard that expression somewhere around experiencing trauma that they have to be strong for someone else, meaning you can't feel the feelings or accept or deal with the experience that you've just encountered. And it's easy for me from the outside to say, well, that seems like really bad advice. But I don't know. Um, How did you feel about being told those things and maybe some other myths about how we should handle grief?
1: Yeah, I think the nuance with that one in particular is we hear that and we think about the receiver's point of view, but we don't think about the person who's speaking. They're not actually thinking about what that person needs to do. I heard the same thing around, um, yeah, imagine dad has died and mom has 14-year-old son at home and a lot of pressure ends up going to him. She doesn't really mean, you know, it's not really about the boy. It's about her processing her feelings out loud, Um, even maybe, I forget the psychological term, transference, or that might not be right, but like, you know, maybe she herself wants to be strong, and these are just the words that are coming out. So, yeah, it bothered me for a really long time, and especially um, the, I don't know if you noticed, but the phrase comes up twice, there's an old loss and a new loss that is shared in the book, and Truthfully, you know, life is stranger than fiction, those same words were spoken both times, some 25 years apart. Um, but yeah, I, it's, it's all about the person speaking, I think. And there are a lot of things that... Um, I think people just get really uncomfortable and we don't know what to say, so we either say nothing or we say something silly. Um, And that's why I love the definition I read in that that first chapter about companioning. Like, You don't actually have to say anything, and if you mess up as long as you're open to feedback and kind about it, we just need you to listen.
0: I do want to ask about what you've learned in terms of what may be a good grieving process, understanding that it's always going to be Different in the context of each individual person's life. Before we talk about that, are there any other myths or poor practices that that you were exposed to around the way to handle the kinds of losses that you experienced?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I one of them is that comes to mind. Um, and Hope Edelman talks about this in the After Grief. Look at me remembering all these book titles today. She writes about the way that we grieve differently and especially like sort of two different common ways. One is the more feminine style. You're crying, you're expressing the feelings, you're in the ick of it. And one is sort of the more masculine way of you're keeping busy, you're taking care of things, you're planning the funeral, you're cooking the food. Um, Neither is better than the other. And typically, we actually cycle in and out of both. But just sort of having words around that helped me understand my father, for example, who I often judge as never dealing with it. And it's like, well, actually, he he very much deals with it, but in that masculine way. At least that's the part that I see, which is not my natural, my natural mode. So that's one thing I've learned. Um, also, the importance of storytelling, which I didn't um, I sort of knew intuitively before I went through this journey, but then learning again from Hope Edelman this researched material around how the act of creating story, true narrative around what happened to you, helps you make sense of it, move through it, and then also maintain a relationship going forward. You know, just because my mom is dead, our relationship still continues. Um, and as I go through new stages in life, I think about. Um you know, I can imagine how I would have gone through that stage with her, and uh, sort of our relationship continues to change over time.:
0: There is reference in the book to faith specifically um, the Catholic faith is mentioned in certain family contexts, and then you know there's some more general references to the concept of heaven and that sort of thing. did faith play any particular role in your journey
1: yeah so earlier i mentioned that there's many pages of thrown away scenes that didn't make it there's this whole theme of religion and faith that just didn't feel super critical to the story i was telling um but it's a little interesting i've gone i forget what your exact question was now but (laughs) i've gone all through things like Um, I was raised Catholic and then I really rebelled against it. And I was, I actually remember in college meeting an agnostic person for the first time. This is embarrassing that I was 18 or 19 years old. But I remember I was just like, so you don't, you don't believe the Bible? Like in my head, the Bible was just so factual. And he's like, no, I just, you know, maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. My mind was just blown, right? So shortly after that, I went through an agnostic period, an atheist period, all over the place. Now I consider myself, I believe in a higher power. I'm not religious. I have lots of beliefs around religion. It's great for some people. The weird thing is I've always held on to this idea that my mom died for a reason, there was purpose to it, and also I can always communicate with her. And that stayed even while I was struggling with my faith. It's like, logically, it doesn't quite make sense that I was an atheist, but I also believed that I could, my mother could visit me as an angel or whatever, I could pray to her. Um, But that was my reality.
0: There was a period, of course, that you're writing that you were haunted, you felt haunted by her, you worried about her being a ghost in Mm. the bedroom.
1: That was strictly in my young Catholic days where I was afraid, probably more inspired by um, TV shows like Unsolved Mysteries than my Catholic church and the lovely priest that taught me but um, yes I was afraid she was some kind of evil ghost that was gonna hurt me somehow.
0: You write movingly about suicidal ideation uh, at, at an early point in your life and you don't go into too much detail necessarily about the psychology of it, just that that was a phase that happened to you, it was a part of your experience and it just seemed to dissipate for you. Are you able to talk just a little bit more about that chapter?
1: Yes. Um, I kind of forgot about the existence of that chapter until you just asked me about it. That's a very accurate description though, it did sort of dissipate. Um, And I didn't realize which seems odd because the memories were there, but I didn't realize that I had been suicidal until a class in middle school where they defined suicide. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, wishing for death, that's, I used to do that a lot. Um, There was a period where I just remember, I think it must have happened. You don't know, but I think it happened so many times and that's why this these words are so cemented in my brain, but it was, God, please let me die. That was the prayer. So I I went from, from saying prayers that I had learned from my Catholic prayer books to saying that. So it's like the faith was still there, but the um, faith in myself to be able to handle what I was dealing with had left.
0: You talked about being told to be strong because you'd experienced two losses 25 years apart and as someone reads a book they'll discover that your brother Aaron also died and it it seems to be just at a time that you are reconnecting because he himself had had to deal with challenges as a result I think of grieving the loss of you know, your mother. I'm curious how the experience of losing your mom maybe just shaped how you adapted to and came to terms with the loss of your brother.
1: It's hard to say, um, but I do feel a bit like it was, in retrospect, a chance to practice some of what I'd been learning. It was a chance to grieve um more so in the moment instead of this having to go back and grieve the things that I hadn't processed there's something else that ties those together which is that I knew from a very early age that life could end at any time most people my age didn't have that understanding I felt I had bigger thoughts and feelings about the importance of life and the shortness of it and the meaning of life than anyone my age and One of the things I'm most proud of, as you mentioned, is reconnecting with my brother. And I think that's part of why I was able to see him. I had gone 11 years without seeing him. And then he, you know, died not too long after that. So, yeah, I'm very grateful for that. And it was a wonderful reunion. That's my favorite chapter in the book.
0: You mentioned earlier some good therapy sessions, but there's also another part of Uh, your therapeutic healing that you mentioned towards the back of the book, which is therapy with horses. And I wonder if you could just share a little bit about what that is and how it was cathartic for you.
1: Yeah, I love animals. I feel like they're some part of my future story. I keep seeing animals as this big part of my life, and we're not quite there yet. Um, Except for my precious baby, Kira, my dog. That was Equus Coaching, which is something I discovered when I was in Martha Beck Life Coach training. And it's this weird magical thing where I don't really know how it works, but the horse responds to you in interesting ways that kind of mirror, help you see. Well, so for example, um... They're a prey animal. They're always looking out for danger. So, if you aren't being authentic, if you're really pissed, but you're pretending you're not angry, they're going to respond to you. They're not going to do what you want. They might stop and look at you. So, that's what I experienced when I was with the horse. Um, and interestingly, like I could, we were in an environment where it was easy to kind of monitor what my brain was doing. And my brain quickly went into, oh no, he's upset. How can I make him feel better? And with the coach there to help me see it, I was, you know, it was just this big aha because, oh, wait a minute, that's how I'm treating everyone in my life, putting it on my shoulders to make them feel better. Um, I have since learned the term codependency. That's another thing I'm learning about and boundaries, so many layers of growth in life. Um, But yeah, that was really special. And the horse, you know, it's, you talked about these things that people say accidentally, humans are lovely and also imperfect. And animals, non-human animals, you just don't have any of that that you have to filter through. You know, The horse is just there standing, giving me a hug actually in the chapter. It was very lovely.
0: I know that you don't have children. How has your experience with this loss of your mother and then coming to a healing place around that. How has it changed your sense of what it is to be a mother and how you think about motherhood?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I know my journey with parenthood, which the shortest version is I choose not to be a mother. Um, I don't know how that's connected to this, but I would say the bigger thing I've taken away is that that self-mothering. It's like, even before kids come into the picture, I didn't quite internalize how to mother myself. And that's a big part of, I don't think I say it directly, but that's a big part of what's happening throughout this experience that I write about in the book. Um, Because we have to be able to take care of ourselves before we can take care of anyone else, of course.
0: The book ends really, hopefully, because you've charted this journey from this traumatic experience. And and actually the book, as it moves towards the end, closes with that traumatic experience. You, as a child, the then part of the story takes us to the point of your mother's death. So that is obviously traumatic. But in the now part, you are moving also side by side to a place of healing and play and joy. I would imagine that to say you are over grief, can never be a correct statement. I don't know that anyone is ever actually over grief. Insofar as you can't say that, how close are you, as it were, to being over or having absorbed that into your life and still able to find within yourself joy and playfulness and hope and, and those kinds of positive feelings?
1: I am getting much better at accepting every feeling that arises. I think that's what it's about. Because you just never know. I could smell a smell 20 years from now and all of a sudden feel like I need to cry. It happens often that I get irritable about something that might be grief-related. And, yeah, we don't learn this stuff in school. We don't learn it as adults unless we really go out and seek this information but emotions are just energy in motion. They're often really informative and if we can chill out and learn how to let them move through us, it's not so scary. So it's, yeah, I'm not over it. It's more like I'm not so scared of it.
0: Do you have any wisdom or thoughts or advice that you would share with listeners who themselves may be experiencing uh, grief and loss that they're trying to deal with or, or may in the future?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm no expert, Stuart, but I do think um, normalization has always helped me. So reaching out and finding people that are talking about this stuff or experiencing this stuff is so huge. I think that's the biggest thing that I wanted to deliver with this book was just helping someone feel like they weren't the only one that experienced something. And that seems to be really helpful in times of loss when we're kind of between identities. We don't know what's next.
0: Would you close us out, please, with a little reading from the book?
1: This is an excerpt that I'm calling Baking with Mom, which is mildly adapted from I killed mom and other lies. Before she died at 35 years old, my mom loved to bake. I can remember being in the kitchen, knees bent, peering through the glass of the oven door to watch her pie crust, fruit crisp, or cookies turn golden brown. I loved her chocolate chip cookies. Once she'd scooped them onto the sheets, she, my brother, and I would huddle around the counter licking a spatula, hand mixer attachment, or the emptied bowl. Now, three decades after her death, I intentionally seek out contexts that invite my mom in, like baking. For my favorite chocolate chip cookies, I omit the eggs and sub in a cholesterol-free vegan butter that didn't exist in her lifetime. When I make a batch, she's in my kitchen too, excited for our upcoming sugar high. I stand in front of my own kitchen countertop, savor a bite of raw dough, and am transported in time. I don't want closure. I don't want to be over it. I want to feel connected to the people I love, whether they're living or not.
0: My guest today has been author and coach Mandy Kubicek. Mandy, thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you for having me again.
0: Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Bierman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.